You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Collective Cafe, a virtual coffee experience which takes place every single Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in both Alpha Collective's Discord, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective and startup clubs house in clubhouse it's free it always will be free there are no strings attached there is no bait and switch lurk or listen only chat with one another in our back chat or even come onto stage the coffee shop is open for business whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom to your home office on monday we manifest on tuesday we talk thought leadership on wellness wednesday we discuss mental health wellness and life skills on thursday we do live book reads and discussions with the author and then on friday it's no agenda friday where there is no agenda start your day off on the right foot on the front foot with virtual coffee with the collective cafe where we mastermind we manifest we collaborate we help one another at the business of web3 or anything else that intersects whether it's culture collaboration creativity innovation disruption entrepreneurship or coaching so give us a subscribe bit.ly forward slash collective cafe to go or a review on your favorite podcast platform if you're listening on demand or of course join us every day live it is addictive and remember it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot this is alpha collectives collective cafe my name is joseph jaffe well good morning everybody it is thursday september 28th and i bought myself a new little connection um so now i have the i uh, guess usb-c to us to whatever it is but uh i'm now plugged directly back into the roadcaster all is good all is back in uh in alignment and uh today we are it's a thursday so i, I was looking on my bookshelf of about a thousand books of which i haven't read about 995 of them and um, and I wanted to find a book to I don't know maybe just read read once and if we like it keep going and uh, something that just really spoke to me and uh, I'm going to show you what that book is in a moment. I'm also going to tell you there's a whole bunch of things I want to tell you as we wait for people to come in. Still not quite sure what the hell is going on with the algorithm. Um, so I mean it's it just seems like right now something. <laughs> I mean, it always feels like I start off every morning talking about Clubhouse, lamenting. And I guess that's all. We are lamenters. We lament. Um, because, you know, I, I go into Clubhouse myself now, even in the evenings. Like, I like to have something on in the background when I'm working. 
and I cannot find a single room. I just cannot find anything. I just seem to have, um, uh, there's just one, this guy, Roger, Roger someone, and it's like something conversations, you know, and, and but for the most part, that and John Lee rooms. And so between these two rooms, but I see nothing else. And so now I guess what's happening is we're just buried. I tried even to share it in the house hallway in Startup Club, but it ain't working. And so I just feel bad. I actually feel bad for the people that aren't able to make it, to be honest, uh, because I'm here and I'm going to continue being here. Nice Lily and Rhonda Scott are in our Discord. And we have uh, Christopher, one of our regulars, plus uh, Shellen, Amena, and Lana. So enjoy it. It's nice and small and intimate. Um, Christopher, I don't know if you actually did session yesterday um, because uh, I finished. I, I, I had a, a breakfast that I had to go to. And when I was done with the breakfast, I, I kind of, it was about 8.35, 8.40. I checked in. I didn't see anything going on. So I just came in and just kept the streak going. So at least logged in, but there wasn't anyone around. So I wasn't sure if actually there was a session uh, yesterday. Uh, um, Praxim, today at 8.02, uh, Praxim says, uh, audio is loud. Oh, I'm not sure why. Um, everything is normal here. What I did is, I, I guess I just plugged back um, you know, this is coming through the disc, uh, coming through the roadcaster again. Uh, whereas yesterday, I think I was just talking directly through. So maybe you turned your volume up. I'm not really sure. Um, anyway, so I found a book called Happier by Tal Ben Shahar. Um, the and it's Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillments. Fulfillment. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller, and uh, on the cover it says the backbone of the most popular course at Harvard. So there you go. Um, when I opened up the book, um, it said compliments of Zappos. Uh, and so I must have got this book uh, for free uh, when I went and I toured Zappos. You know, at the time, Zappos would do these tours. I think they probably still do them. And um, and I think uh, Tony Shea, the, low to- the late Tony Shea, who was the founder and CEO of Zappos, I think he wrote a book called Open Happiness. So that was their whole platform. That was their whole positioning, their whole foundation at Zappos. Um, was happiness and that they were really kind of in the happiness business. Um, the sad thing and the most ironic twist is um, he suffered from depression and he actually took his own life. It was a, a great loss for, for Zappos, for, for marketing, for, you know, for, for, for this planet because he was such an amazing guy, Tony Shea. Uh, but it just shows you, you know, I mean, the quest for happiness is, um, you know, it, it's, it's a struggle. It's an ongoing struggle. It's a, it's an ongoing pursuit. Um, and, uh, and of course the irony here is that sometimes, you know, people may appear to be happy on the outside, but inside or anything, but, um, so it's just something to be mindful of. Um, all right, so let's start off. Um, let's start off at the beginning. And, um, and, and by the way, it's, it's so interesting because, um, I like literally went into Clubhouse and I pinged as many people as I could find. Um, and hello, Rene. And um, and so anyway, this is this is this is the room that is hidden based on Clubhouse. So the people that are here, hopefully, you will find today an Easter egg, and you will you will uh, you will feel fulfilled. Um, and you are going to be because this book seems amazing. So the book is called Happier by Tal Ben Shahar, and uh, I'm going to start off um, with the preface. Um, a quote with a, a, co- a quote by Anne Frank. We all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different and yet the same. 
I first taught a positive psychology seminar at Harvard in 2002. Eight students signed up, two dropped out. In, in class each week, we explored what I believe to be the question of questions. How can we help ourselves and others, individuals, communities, and society become happier? We read academic journal articles, tested ideas, sorry, we read academic journal articles, tested ideas, shared personal stories, experienced frustration as well as delight, and by the end of the year emerged with a clearer understanding of what psychology can teach us about leading happier, more fulfilled lives. The following year, the class went public in a manner of speaking. My mentor, Philip Stone, who first introduced me to the field and was also the first professor to teach positive psychology at Harvard, encouraged me to offer a lecture course on the topic. 380 students signed up. In their year-end evaluations, more than 20% noted that the course improves the quality of one's life. The next time I offered the course, 855 students enrolled, making it the largest class at the university. William James, who took over a century ago, founded American Psychology, kept me on track by reminding me to remain practical and seek, in quote, truth's cash value in experiential terms. Oh, I love that. Truth's cash value in experiential terms. That's a meaty quote, isn't it? The cash value that I primarily sought for the students was not in hard currency or the currency of success and accolades, but rather in what I've come to call the ultimate currency, the end towards toward which all other ends lead, happiness. This was not merely... By the way, you know, in my new book, in, in, um, in Forever Changed, I've got an entire chapter called Does Money Buy Happiness? And uh, the conclusion of the chapter is no, but happiness buys money. So... I mean, this is pretty consistent stuff. Um, This was not merely a class on the theory of the good life. Students beyond reading articles and learning about the research in the field were asked to apply the material. They wrote papers in which they grappled with their fears and reflected on their strengths, set ambitious goals for the week and for the coming decade. They were encouraged to take risks and find their stretch zone, the healthy median between their comfort and panic zones. That's also a nice thought here. A stretch zone is the healthy median between your comfort and your panic zone. So that's also just, by the way, I'm stopping there for a second. I love this idea. So it's already another meaty concept. Like I could I could literally, literally do an entire session today on just that concept. That's how, that's how rich it is. Because we always talk about, you know, kind of your comfort and stretch. Like even in business, like this is the goal, right? You sit down with your salespeople, whatever, and you say, this is our goal and this is the stretch, but it seems like there's an extra zone as well, which is called the panic zone. And now we know that stretch actually lives between comfort and panic. By the way, if you are new to this, um, we're gonna we do this every Thursday, and um, actually we do the collective cafe every week, every weekday, I should say. Uh, personally. I was not always able to find that healthy median. As a shy introvert, I felt fairly comfortable the first time I taught the class with six students. Lecturing in front of close to 400 students the following year, however, was certainly a stretch for me. When the class more than doubled in the third year, I was firmly in the panic zone, especially once students' parents, a handful of grandparents, and then the media started to show up. Since the day that the Harvard Crimson and then the Boston Globe reported on the popularity of the class, the deluge of questions hasn't stopped. People are sensing, have been sensing for a while, that we are in the midst of some sort of revolution and they are not sure why. 
How can you explain the demand for positive psychology at Harvard and on other college campuses? Why this, why this growing interest in the study of happiness in elementary and high schools, as well as among the adult population? Is it because people are more depressed today? Is it something about a 21st century education or our Western way of life? In fact, the study of happiness is unique neither to our hemisphere nor to our postmodern age. People everywhere and always have sought the key to happiness. Plato institutionalized the study of the good life in his academy while his star student Aristotle opened the competing Lyceum to promote his own take on flourishing. More than a century later and on another continent, Confucius walked from village to village to share his prescription for fulfillment. No great religion or comprehensive philosophical system is indifferent to the question of happiness, whether in this world or in the afterlife. More recently, self-help gurus have occupied large parts of bookstores and conference centers around the world from India to Indiana, from Jerusalem to Jeddah. But while interest in and study of the good life transcends time and place, there are some unique aspects in our age that help explain the high demand for positive psychology. In the United States, rates of depression are 10 times higher today than they were in the 1960s, and the average age for the onset of depression is 14 and a half, compared to 29 and a half in 1960. Wow. A study conducted in American colleges tells us that nearly 45% of students were so depressed that they had difficulty functioning. Other countries are following in the footsteps of the United States. In 1957, 52% in Britain said they were very happy compared to 36% in 2005, despite the fact that the British have tripled their wealth over the last half century. With a rapid growth in the Chinese economy comes a rapid growth in the number of adults and children who experience anxiety and depression. According to the Chinese Health Ministry, the mental health status of our children's of our country's children and youths is indeed worrying. I just want to kind of, um, well, let me just finish this and then I'll, I want to go and look at when the book was actually published. While levels of material prosperity are on the rise, so are levels of depression, even though our generation in most Western countries, as well as an increasing number of places in the East, is wealthier than previous generations, we are not happier for it. A leading scholar in the field of positive psychology, I'm not going to pronounce this, Michele Chik. Jen Mikali, it's like you have no idea how, bad, how, how difficult that name is, asks a simple question with a complex answer. If we are so rich, why aren't we happy? Actually, in the book, I use the Bob Marley quote, which is, some people are so poor, all they have is money. As long as people believe that their basic material needs had to be met in order for them to lead a fulfilling life, it was easy to explain away unhappiness. But now, with the basic needs of many having been met, there is no longer a ready-made justification for discontent. More and more people are looking to resolve the paradox that, peop- that money seems to have brought us unhappiness and they are turning to positive psychology for help. Why positive psychology? Positive psychology generally referred to as the scientific study of optimal human functioning. It's interesting, right? That just I find that already kind of interesting that positive psychology is referred to the study, the scientific study of optimal human functioning. So, I mean, by definition, what we're saying here is to be able to optimally, to optimally, 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 <laughs> God, to optimally, there you go, 
function as a human, you you need positive uh, psychology as well. Um, Rene actually said interruptions at here. Many come back. Thanks for the room and topic. Rhythm, uh, universal concept. Um, but between us, oh, I like that. And now he's out the room. I would have, I, I didn't realize. But um, let's ca- let's continue. Um, okay, uh, let's start again. Positive psychology, generally referred to as the scientific study of optimally of optimal human functioning, was officially launched as a field of study in 1998 by Martin Seligman, president of the American Psychological Association. Also interesting, there were this is something that's only been introduced um, in 1998. Wow, uh, this book was published in 2007. So I think we need to also just recognize, and it's a very important point, very, very important point, that this is 2007. This is 2007. 2007, I can tell you, I mean, Facebook was only kind of, because I know this, Facebook was actually only launched, you know, and it was still like, I don't know, a dating site or whatever in 2005 and YouTube was probably only launched 2006. I think Twitter was only launched in 2007, um, and and so we can like just Im- just imagine imagine how much worse things have actually become from a you know social ma- and and the role that social media has played in terms of exacerbating this this depression this isolation this disconnectedness and then and this doesn't even factor in you know the COVID years it doesn't factor in you know the partisan you know um, divide and debate so. Things have got a lot worse, at least when it relates to to our happiness and depression. And so I think it's important, you know, to kind of recognize this. Uh, Also, this book is published only 10 years after uh, positive um, psychology um, as a a field is is only being introduced. So, I mean, it's kind of like crazy. Um, So... Let's go back. Um, until that year, the study of happiness, of enhancing the quality of our lives, had lo- largely been dominated by pop psychology. In the multitude of, se- of self-help seminars and books, there is much fun and charisma, and yet many, though far from all, offer little substance. They promise five easy steps to happiness, the three secrets of success, and four ways to find your perfect lover. They are usually empty promises and over the years, people have become cynical about self-help. On the other side, we have academic with writing and research that are substantive, but do not find their way into most households. As I see it, the role of positive psychology is to bridge the ivory tower and Main Street, the rigor of academic of academia, and the fun of the self-help movement. So you have a little triangulation. That too is the purpose of the book. So it's interesting, right? What we're trying to do here um, is uh, bridge um, the ivory tower and Main Street. So you've got the whole academic research intellectual side, and then you've got the fun of the self-help movement. That is this, you know, difference between, in this case, um, you know, I don't know, Harvard and Main Street. Many self-help books over-promise and under-deliver because few of them are subjected to the test of the scientific method In contrast, ideas that have appeared in academic journals and have passed the academic process from conception to publication usually have much more substance. While the authors are generally less grandiose, making fewer promises to fewer readers, these authors also tend to deliver on their promises. Okay, so, you know, whatever, like 
definitely favoring um, the academic side, no doubt. And yet, because positive psychology bridges the ivory tower and Main Street, advice given by positive psychologists, whether in book form, in lectures, or on a website, can sometimes sound like the advice that self-help gurus offer. It is simple and accessible like pop psychology is, but it is simple and accessible in a radically different way. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes remarked, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Holmes was interested in the simplicity that comes after searching and researching deep reflection and laborious testing, not in baseless platitudes and off-the-cuff assertions. Positive psychologists, by delving into the depth of a phenomenon, emerge on the other side of complexity with accessible ideas and practical theories, as well as simple techniques and tips that work. This is no easy feat. Foreshadowing Holmes, Leonardo da Vinci, ah, I didn't realize it was a positive psychologist, pointed out that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So it's a little bit of riffing here on the whole idea of um, the power of simplicity. That just finds itself, I mean, in everything. It finds itself even, um, you know, in, in, in what would be called, in EOS calls the five leadership abilities. Um, <clears throat> and the first one, you know, and the first one is simplify. You know, so um, it's, it's, it's really important um, to recognize that simplifying without creating oversimplification um, is, in fact, the ultimate sophistication. Concerned with, with distilling the essence of the good life, positive psychologists, alongside with social scientists and philosophers, have spent a great deal of time and effort attempting to reach the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Their ideas, some of which I describe in this book, can help you lead a happier, more fulfilled life. I know they can. They have done so for me. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to skip a little bit because um, the rest of it is just like reading and going through acknowledgements. Um, so we're going to go into uh, part one. What is happiness? The question of happiness. Chapter one. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. Albert Einstein. I was 16 years old when I won the Israeli National Squash Championship. It was an event that brought the subject of happiness into sharp focus in my life. I'd always believed that winning the title would make me happy, would alleviate the emptiness I felt so much of the time. For the five years I trained for the event, I felt that something important was missing from my life, something that all of the miles run, the weights lifted, the self-motivational speeches playing and replaying in my mind were not providing but I believed that it was only a matter of time before that missing, that missing something would find its way into my life. After all, it seemed clear to me that the mental and physical exertion were necessary to win the championship. Winning the championship was necessary for fulfillment. Fulfillment was necessary for happiness. That was the logic that I operated under. And in fact, when I won the Israeli nationals, I was ecstatic, happier than I'd ever imagined myself being. Following the final match, I went out with my family and friends and we celebrated together. I was certain then that the belief that had carried me through the five years of preparation that winning the title would make me happy was justified. The hard work, the physical and emotional pain had paid off. After the night of celebration, I retired to my room. I sat on my bed and wanted to savor for the last time before going to sleep that feeling of supreme happiness. Suddenly, without warning, the bliss came that came 
from having attained in real life what had for so long been my most cherished and exalted fantasy disappeared and my feeling of emptiness returned. I was befuddled and afraid. The tears of joy shed only hours earlier turned to tears of pain and helplessness. For if I was not happy now, when everything seemed to have worked out perfectly, what prospects did I have of attaining lasting happiness? I tried to convince myself that I was feeling the temporary low following an overwhelming high, but as the days and months unfolded, I did not feel happier. In fact, I was growing even more desolate as I began to see that simply substituting a new goal, winning the world championship, say, would not in itself lead me to happiness. There no longer seemed to be a series of logical steps for me to follow. Um, so what, what the book does is now the book has something called a time in as opposed to a time out. It says, reflect on a couple of personal experiences where reaching a certain milestone did not bring you the emotional payoff you expected. I mean, I can, I can answer that now. I can even tell you that you know, selling, selling my company um, probably felt like that too. You know, in fact, quite quite practically, I would say, you know, sold the company and I'll never forget, um, you know, leaving the lawyer's office and, you know, literally seeing the wire hit the bank account, never seen so much money in my life in terms of like, you know, that, that initial uh, lump sum payment um, and probably opened up, in fact, I did open up a 25-year bottle of Macallan and it was just so like that euphoria. Um, but then, then what, you know, then like, you know, you're going to go on an expensive vacation and, you know, almost act like you win the lottery and then the reality of the company that bought you sets in and now you have an earnout and and dealing with politics and absorbing into the new organization. And uh, before I knew it, I was actually miserable. I mean, I actually lived that. I really did experience that, you know, myself. Um, some people are so poor, all they have is money. So, I mean, you know, everything is just so relative. I think that's the point that's being made here. Everything is relative. You're always comparing yourself to someone else. And often, even if you're comparing yourself, and I write about this in Forever Change, even if you're comparing yourself to yourself, that, that can be a false or fake or, a, or an artificial comparison. Because you're not, you're not your younger self. You know, you're not, maybe you're off your game. Maybe you're better off. Maybe you're worse off. So by being able to compare yourself to how you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 20 pounds lighter, you know, $2 million richer, whatever the case may be. Um, and then, of course, there's the other comparison, which is the next person and the next person. Excuse me. And, and so, you, you know, you also be, get very referential you know, in, your, in your life, which is before you might have been hanging out with a certain group of people. Now you're hanging out with another certain group of people. You might have been the most well-off in one. You might have been the most well-off in, in one section, and now suddenly you're you're you know you're at the bottom, right? You were the the head of the fox, and now you're tail of the lion. How does that feel? Um, and so that is the danger of this kind of referential thinking. So for me, it it definitely speaks true. I realized that I needed to think about happiness in different ways um, to deepen or change my understanding of the nature of happiness. I became obsessed with the answer to a single question, how can I find lasting happiness? Just think about that for a second. Is that the single question? How can I find lasting happiness? How can you find lasting happiness? I pursued it fervently. I observed it. I observed people who seemed happy 
and asked what it was that made them happy. I read everything I could find on the topic of happiness, from Aristotle to Confucius, from ancient philosophy to modern psychology, from academic research to self-help books. To continue my exploration of the question of happiness in a more formal way, I decided to study philosophy and psychology in college. I met brilliant people who had dedicated themselves as writers, thinkers, artists, or teachers to understanding the big questions. Learning to read a text closely and analytically, attending lectures on intrinsic, motiv- intrinsic motivation and on creativity, reading Plato on the good and Emerson on the integrity of your own mind, um, all of these provided me with new lenses through which my life and the lives of those around me came into clearer focus. I was not alone in my unhappiness. Many of my classmates seemed to be dispirited and stressed. And yet I was struck by how little time they dedicated to what I believe to be the question of questions. They spent their time pursuing high grades, athletic achievements, and prestigious jobs, but the pursuit and attainment of these goals failed to provide them with an experience of sustained well-being. Although their specific goals changed when they left college, promotion at work replaced academic success, for, for instance, the essential pattern of their lives remained the same. So many people seem to accept their poor emotional predicament as the inevitable price of success. Could it be then that Thoreau's observation that most people lead lives of quiet desperation was true? Even if it was, I refused to accept his dire assessment as a necessary fact of life and sought answers to the following questions. How can a person be both successful and happy? How can ambition and happiness be reconciled? Is it possible to defy the maxim of no pain, no gain? In trying to answer these questions, I realized that I would first have to figure out what happiness is. Is it an emotion? Is it the same as pleasure? Is it the absence of pain? The experience of bliss? Words like pleasure, bliss, ecstasy, and contentment are often used interchangeably with the word happiness, but none of them describes precisely what I mean When I think about happiness, these emotions are fleeting and while they are enjoyable and significant, they are not the measure or the pillars of happiness. We can experience sadness at times and still enjoy overall happiness. While it was clear to me which words and definitions were inadequate, finding those that could capture the nature of happiness proved more difficult. We all talk about happiness and mostly know it when we experience it, but we lack a coherent definition that can help us identify its antecedents. The source of the word happiness is the Icelandic word hap. Uh, Now, we had had this in a previous previous, uh, collective cafe, which is, was it happy or or happier? um, i got to go find it, but it was very interesting. I'm sure Praxim was the person who probably shared it, Um, but we're going to get to it as well. The source of the word happiness is the Icelandic word hap, H-A-P-P, which means luck or chance. The same source of the words haphazard and happenstance. Okay, like my mind is like being blown here. Um, I did not want to leave the experience of happiness to chance and therefore sought to define and understand it. So the source of the word happiness actually means luck or chance. Like beginner's luck, you know, luck of the Irish, dumb luck. Um, the more I practice, the luckier I get. What is going on here? Um, so this is a, a, a time in, you know, so what they call it, they call, um, uh, and 
And I'm thinking as we do this book, um, if you want to actually like comment in the chat or even jump up onto stage and, and answer these and share it with me, why not make it more collaborative? So the timing is this question. How would you define happiness? What does happiness mean to you? Now, if you are in the room right now um, and you want to continue on this journey, um, we do the Collective Cafe Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, you can always link to it out of uh, an off startup club. What I did hear, by the way, what I did hear um, in, in the town hall is, is, is to encourage people to, you know, uh, hit the notification, hit the bell so that whenever I go live or whenever this goes live, you know about it, blah, blah, blah. I might also have to like just try and use my personal room and see what's going on. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as filler as well, which is, you know, Christopher, uh, uh, Eamon, um, did I get that right? Um, um, Rhonda, Praxim, anyone want to take a stab at this? Um, how would you define happiness? What does happiness mean to you? I'm thinking, I'm actually going to take a minute to think about it as well. So if anyone wants to put it in the chat or raise your hand, um, or come up to stage in Discord, go for it. Don't be afraid. I'm afraid right now. I don't know what the answer is. And I think my answer is, I, I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure how I would define happiness. I think it's an emotion. I think it's a feeling. Um, I think it's uh, maybe senses of like like I'm happy when I'm with my loved ones. You know, I'm I'm happy when my team wins wins a match. Um, I kind of feel like, in a way, happiness means things are going well. I'm trying to get a bit philosophical with myself and with you. So, you know, why am I happy when my team wins? Because they won. You know, because the result we were victorious. Um, could I be happy if we lose? Well, typically I would say no. What if we played really, really well and lost as opposed to being able to play awfully um, and maybe get unbelievably lucky and win? Would I be happy that they won even though they won ugly, even though we kind of, um, I would probably justify it and say, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to grind those victories um, and, and I'm happy in, in our hard work or, you know, but, but could I be happy in, in, in loss? Yes. If that loss was probably associated with, you know, maybe playing a better team, you know, I don't know that I'd be happy if we played a worse team, if we were on top of the league playing the bottom team in the league and we played really, really well, and still lost, would I be happy? Probably not. So it seems like maybe happiness is also, in my life, is contingent on external factors, as opposed to being happy inside. Am I happy right now? Am I happy right now doing the Collective Cafe? Am I happy with the fact that Clubhouse's algorithm is such that instead of having hundreds of people in the room, we have 11 or 12? Is that bugging me a little bit? You know, am I okay with it? I guess. You know, would I be happy if there were more people in the room? Yes, because 
I think that this is good content, great content, in fact. I mean, I feel that I'm happy for today. I'm happy for this content. I'm so happy I'm doing this book. I'm really, really happy I found this book. I'm pretty sure you would be too. But let's go back to that question. How would you define happiness? You know, I guess I guess if I use my definition within forever change, because I actually have thought about this, right? The formula for forever change is love what you do. So I would define happiness in part as love. And I would and I would and I would um I would define happiness as sufficiency. I would define happiness as the Goldilocks effect. Not too not too much, not too little, just enough. Just right. Just enough, a sweet spot. Happiness is a sweet spot. Not necessarily comfort, but a place in which I can feel content. Instead of doubt, instead of self-doubt, instead of if only, instead of woulda, coulda, shoulda, instead of, you know, maybe a little bit more. It's this feeling of, of peace. That was my first thought, was, was ironically, was the word peace popped in. That's happiness. But happiness without question, to me, is this whole continuation of love what you do, be true to yourself and stay the course. This is what I was meant to do. This is my purpose. This is my calling. That is the ultimate happiness. The other word that I think of is not just peace, but pride. I'm proud of what I've achieved. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of you. So pride, not not pride as one of the uh, seven deadly sins, but pride from a love standpoint. To me, all of that becomes my definition of happiness. So I I wonder what you think. I'm going to finish the chapter today and end a little early um, just because I have to run to a meeting. Um, But again, if you want to come back, we will do this uh, every Thursday for the next few Thursdays and uh, we'll be back tomorrow, of course. Rhonda uh, said, thank you, Rhonda, for participating. She said, happiness, state of peace and feeling complete even when things are crazy. So isn't that interesting? So We start off with this definition of happy, you know, or happy that is talking about luck and chance. And now we're talking about kind of peace, you know, and contentment. These are all very surprising insights. I was also, Rhonda, saying the same thing. It's amazing. I'm going to carry on reading. Uh, I do not have the complete answer to the single question I posed at age 16. I suspect that I will never have it. Through my reading, research, observation, and reflection, I've discovered no secret formula, no five easy steps to happiness. My objective in writing this book is to raise awareness of the general principles underlying a happy and fulfilling life. These general principles are certainly not a panacea and moreover are not relevant for all people in all situations. I have mostly limited my focus to positive psychology and do not address many internal obstacles that prevent people from pursuing happiness, such as major depression or acute anxiety disorder. Nor are the ideas applicable for many of the external obstacles that come in the way of a flourishing life. It is sometimes impossible for those living in in a conflict area under political oppression or in extreme poverty to begin to apply the theory presented in the following pages. Following the loss of someone dear, it is exceedingly hard to concern oneself with the question of questions. Even in less severe situations, a disappointment, a difficult spell at work or within a relationship it may be unhelpful to ask a person to focus on the pursuit of happiness. 
The best we may be able to do under some circumstances is to experience the negative emotions and allow them to take their natural course. Some suffering is unavoidable in every life and there are many external and internal barriers to the good life that cannot be overcome by reading a book. However, a better understanding of the nature of happiness and more important, applying certain ideas can help most people in most situations become happier. Now look, I mean, in this program that I've been doing, Positive Intelligence, PQ, um, it does you know, hold that everything that happens to you um, is a gift and so you have to find that gift. From happy to happier. While writing this book or reading others' notions of happiness, when thinking about the good life and observing the behavior of those around me, I've often asked myself, am I happy? Others have asked me a similar question. It took me a while to recognize that while while well-meaning, this question is not helpful. So interesting, the question of saying, are you happy? Am I happy? Um, which, Which we do. I mean, we tend to ask that question a lot to people. How do I determine whether I'm happy or not? At what point do I become happy? Is there some universal standard of happiness? And if there is, how do I identify? Does it depend on my happiness relative to others? And if it does, how do I gauge how how happy other people are? There is no reliable way to answer these questions. And even if, if there were, I would not be happier for it. Am I happy is a closed question that suggests the binary approach to, to the pursuit of the good life. We are either happy or we are not. Happiness, according to this approach, is an end of a process, a finite and, and definable point that, when reached, signifies the termination of our pursuit. This point, however, does not exist, and clinging to the belief that it does will lead to dissatisfaction and frustration. We can always be happier. No person experiences perfect bliss at all times and has nothing more to which he can aspire. Therefore, rather than asking myself whether I'm happy or not, a more helpful question is how can I become happier? This question acknowledges the nature of happiness and the fact that its pursuit is an ongoing process best represented by an infinite continuum, not by a finite point. I'm happier today than I was five years ago and I hope to be happier five years from now than I am today. Rather than feeling despondent because we have not yet reached the point of perfect happiness, Rather than squandering our energies trying to gauge how happy we are, we need to recognize that happiness is an unlimited resource and then focus on ways in which we can attain more of it. Becoming happier is a lifelong pursuit. I think that's a really uh, interesting point there at the end, that actually happiness is an unlimited resource. That's a new idea, not something I've ever heard before. And certainly becoming happier is a lifelong pursuit. I would agree with that statement. It is, it is a, you know, a work uh, in progress uh, for sure. Let me just see. Um, I think, uh, oh, I thought Maximilian raised their hand, raised your hand. So I was going to invite you up. Um, so let's, let's continue. We have uh, two pages left. Exercises. Okay, so it's the end of the, the chapter, and this is called Exercises, uh, Creating Rituals. We all know that change is hard. Much research suggests that learning new tricks, adopting new behaviors, or breaking old habits may be harder than we even realize, and that most attempts at change, whether by individuals or organizations, fail. Right? Remember, I've just written a book called Forever Changed, and I wrote a whole chapter on slippage um, and how do we avoid slipping back. 
It turns out that self-discipline is usually insufficient when it comes to fulfilling our commitments, even those we know are good for us. This is why most New Year's resolutions fail. It's also why I am back on diet. Uh, In their book, The Power of Full Engagement, Jim Lerr and Tony Schwartz provide a different way of thinking about change. They suggest that instead of focusing on cultivating self-discipline as a means towards change, we need to introduce rituals. According to Lerr and Schwartz, Building rituals require defining very precise behaviors and performing them at very specific times, motivated by deeply held values. Initiating a ritual is often difficult, but maintaining it is relatively easy. Top athletes have rituals. They know that at specific hours during each day, they're on the field after which they are in the gym, and then they stretch. For most of us, brushing our teeth at least twice a day is a ritual and therefore does not require special powers of discipline. We need to take the same approach toward any change we want to introduce. For athletes, being a top performer is a deeply held value, and therefore they create rituals around training. For most people, hygiene is a deeply held value, and therefore they create the ritual of brushing their teeth. If we hold our personal happiness as a value and want to become happier, then we need to form rituals around that too. What rituals would make you happier? What would you like to introduce to your life? It could be working out three times a week, meditating for 15 minutes every morning, watching two movies a month, going on a date with your spouse on Tuesdays, pleasure reading for an hour every other day, and so on. Introduce no more than one or two rituals at a time, and make sure they become habits before you introduce new ones. As Tony Schwartz says, incremental change is better than ambitious failure. Success feeds on itself. I repeat that. Incremental change is better than ambitious failure. Success feeds on itself. Once you identify the rituals you want to adopt, enter them in your planner and begin to do them. New rituals may become difficult to initiate, but over time, usually within as little as 30 days, performing these rituals will become as natural as brushing your teeth. Habits in general are difficult to get rid of, and that's a good thing when good habits are concerned. In Aristotle's words, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. That's a good quote. People are sometimes resistant to the idea of introducing rituals because they believe that ritualistic behavior may detract from spontaneity or creativity, especially when it comes to interpersonal rituals, such as a regular date with one's spouse or artistic rituals such as painting. However, if we do not ritualize activities, whether working out in the gym, spending time with our family, or reading for pleasure, we often don't get to them, and rather than being spontaneous, we become reactive to others' demands on our time and energy. In an overall structured, ritualized life, we certainly don't need to have each hour of the day accounted for and thus and can thus leave time for spontaneous behavior. More importantly, we can integrate spontaneity into a ritual. As for example, deciding spontaneously where we go on the ritualized date. The most creative individuals, whether artists, business people, or parents, have rituals that they follow. Paradoxically, the routine frees them up to be creative and spontaneous. Throughout the book, I I will refer back to this exercise as you introduce different practices, different rituals that can help you become happier. This is the last half a page. And then if anyone has any comments, I'd love to hear them. It's called Expressing Gratitude. In research done by Robert Emons and Michael McCullough, those who kept a daily gratitude journal, writing down at least five things for which they were grateful, 
enjoyed high levels of emotional and physical well-being. Each night before going to bed, write down at least five things that made or make you happy, things for which you are grateful. These can be little or big, from a meal that you enjoyed to a meaningful conversation that you had with a friend, from a project at work to God. If you do this exercise regularly, you will naturally repeat yourself, which is perfectly fine. The key is, despite the repetition, to keep the emotions fresh, imagine what each item means to you as you write it down and experience the feeling associated with it. Doing this exercise regularly can help you to appreciate the positive in your life rather than take it for granted. You can do this exercise on your own or with a loved one, a partner, child, parent, sibling, or close friend. Expressing gratitude together can contribute in a meaningful way to the relationship. relationship. And one thing that I did here, actually on my show, uh, was that gratitude is the only emotion, the only emotion that is 100% positive. There's actually one other, which is complete mindfulness, but like complete and utter mindfulness. Like if you can get to that state of complete mindfulness, that is 100% positive. There are no negative emotions associated with that at all. So gratitude and complete mindfulness. So I concur big time. Um, So I would love to hear from any of you. Anyone want to come up? Anyone have any thoughts on what they heard today? Any? um, I'll look in the cafe chat as well. Um, uh, Bez says, what book are we reading? It's a book called Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar. Um, I think it was given to me when I went to visit um, Zappos. So if nobody has any thoughts or comments, as I said, I, I will end uh, today a little bit early. Um, I may, for those of you that are in Clubhouse today, uh, I'm going to try and find out what's going on with the algorithm, but I might like start skipping around a little bit and simulca- go back to simulcasting um, on uh, on. Uh, X, LinkedIn as well. So really the best way, you know, if you want to continue to come to these collective cafes, I mean, I'll come back if they sort it out. Um, But I want to like continue to like to explore and find new audiences. But one thing that never changes is our Discord. And that's the link above, discord.gg forward slash alpha collective. We will always be there. So in a day that you come in and you see a collective cafe is not happening in uh, Clubhouse, chances are it will be happening um, in our Discord. So with that said, have an amazing day. Have a happy day. Um, You know, this idea of this pursuit, the question of questions. And uh, maybe tonight, um, do that gratitude journal. What are five things that made you happy? Excuse me, that made you happy today um, that that you're grateful for? Um, I'll try it as well. Have a great day, everyone. See you tomorrow. Bye. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.